Well, as you, um, as you know, this uh, year my uh, talks are um, about the architecture of disruption. This is about what happens when, through either choice or catastrophe, a monarch can't rule or live in the buildings or palaces that uh, were designed for his uh, life and rule. And in my last lecture, I described how James I actually deliberately subverted English courtly conventions and established a series of extremely unusual royal residences that gave him privacy and freedom from conventional English royal etiquette. Um, I introduced you into this uh, um, rather amazing reconstruction of Royston Palace, um, which isn't just this building here in the middle of Royston. The palace was this entire block of um, buildings in the centre of the town. And uh, from our perspective, uh, it's very hard to regard Royston as a palace at all. It looks just like a jumble of houses in a market town. Well, today, we're going to turn our attention to King Charles I, and in a completely different way from his father, he too ended up living in places which we would hesitate to call palaces. But the difference was between him and his father that unlike James I, Charles strove at every turn to maintain the magnificence and dignity due to him as a sovereign. Well, on the 22nd of August, 1642, Charles I raised his royal standard at Nottingham, signalling the end of a standoff with Parliament and the beginning of what we know as the Civil War. Since the 10th of January that year, when Charles had abandoned London, after his botched attempt to arrest the five members of Parliament, he'd been on the move. He had hastily exited from Whitehall, and he arrived late at night at Hampton Court, which was completely unprepared to receive the royal family. It was cold and only partially furnished when Charles entered his privy lodgings. But the king's concern that night was not comfort, it was security, and preparations were undertaken at lightning speed for the king and queen to move to the safety of Windsor Castle. And it was noted at the time that, and I quote, things are done in such post-haste that I have never heard of the like for the voyage of persons of so great a dignity. These Hurried moves to Hampton Court and Windsor were the first spontaneous moves of hundreds that the king was to make over the next five years before he eventually returned to St. James's Palace a prisoner in January uh, 1649. The court normally planned its itinerary months in advance to allow houses to be furnished and repaired and larders and cellars to be stocked in preparation. But at war, Charles and his family often stayed in makeshift accommodation. The king sleeping under a hedge at Loswithiel in Cornwall and in the back of his coach at Wolvercote in Oxfordshire. Determined to protect his privilege and his pride and finding the process of negotiation with his opponents frustrating and baffling in equal measure, Charles seemed almost to enjoy being in the field. The Queen, Henrietta Maria, 
more focused, more motivated, and it should be said more angry than her husband, apparently relished the situation in which she found herself. Well, the first great battle of the Civil War was fought at Edge Hill, 10 miles northwest of Banbury, and in its aftermath, it was natural that the court and the army should move to Oxford. The university was fervently loyal to the crown, and the city, which of course is in the crook of three rivers, was actually very easily defensible. The king was greeted outside Oxford by the vice-chancellor of the university, uh, who was assured by the king that he would only remain in the city until, and I quote, we can, with safety to our honor and person, in peace, return to the Jerusalem of our nation, our city of London. Thus, for three and a half years, Oxford became the seat of the court, the headquarters of the army, in effect, the royalist capital city. But it was also a garrison town, a fact demonstrated by the appointment of Jacob Lord Astley as its military governor and a board of civilian Lord Commissioners. The governor and the Lord Commissioners had to liaise with the mayor and aldermen on one hand and the vice-chancellor and the heads of the colleges on the other. Governing Oxford, while it was the royalist capital, was uh, complex and fraught, um, even more complex and fraught than it is today. The king uh, made his headquarters at Christchurch. Now, what I'm showing you here is not Christchurch College as you have ever seen it. This is a reconstruction of Christchurch as it was perhaps intended to be when Cardinal Wolsey uh, founded it um, in 1525. This is a reconstruction by my uh, former colleague, uh, Daphne Ford. Uh, what uh, Woolsey did was cannibalise the site of the medieval priory of St. Fryswide and uh, converted the site into what was intended to be the largest college in Oxford or Cambridge. And you can see the vast uh, great cloister flanked uh, to uh, the north and south by a, a great hall and by an enormous chapel that was never um, built. The scheme, of course, was interrupted by his death in 1530. And although uh, the hall, uh, arguably the most magnificent in Oxford, was completed, this great uh, cloistered quad here uh, was only uh, built on three sides. The rest was not um, completed. Um, and uh, instead of this chapel being constructed, uh, the uh, priory church uh, became the college chapel but not for long. Uh, the Episcopal reorganisation that took place after the Reformation saw a new diocese being formed in Oxford, and the chapel became Christchurch Cathedral with its own dean and chapter. Now, this combined arrangement of college and cathedral was unique. But what made it even more unusual were provisions in Cardinal Woolsey's founding statutes of the college which specified that it should be used by the monarch, by his eldest son and their households whenever they liked. Now, 
where exactly Wolsey intended the royal lodgings, the royal palace, if you like, within Christchurch College to be is uncertain. The obvious place would have been um, at the high end here of the Great Hall and in this great tower here that was uh, built uh, on the corner. But when in 1566 uh, Elizabeth I exercised her right to stay at the college, she stayed in the deanery, which occupied the north end um, of this uh, uh, range um, here. And it was also here that Charles I stayed in 1636, when he was the guest of William Lord, the Archbishop of Canterbury. Now, Lord, who we could say a lot about this evening, but we're only going to mention briefly, had begun his career as a royal chaplain, and through the patronage of the Duke of Buckingham, had risen by 1633, not only to be uh, Archbishop of Canterbury, but to be Dean of the Chapel Royal, a Privy Councillor, and Chancellor of Oxford University. And at Oxford, he had built a magnificent new quadrangle at his former college, St. John's. And in 1636, when Charles I came to Oxford, he came to see uh, and to celebrate the opening of this magnificent new courtyard. Now, visits by Stuart Kings and the expectation of more visits drew attention to the fact that incomplete Christchurch had all the prestige of a royal foundation, but none of the expected architectural magnificence. And this want was absolutely highlighted by this spectacular new courtyard at St. John's with its uh, bronze statue in the middle here of um, Charles I by Hubert Le Sœur. And in fact, also at the other side, uh, there was a statue of Henrietta Maria. And so at Christchurch, um, successive deans, Thomas Dupper and his successor, Samuel Fell, who you see here, who were both, both fervent royalists, set out to complete uh, Cardinal Wolsey's unfinished works. Because this is what Christchurch looked like uh, in 1636 when uh, Charles I um, came to the opening of St. John's College. And you can see three sides of the courtyard were completed, not the fourth. Here are the foundations of Wolsey's chapel, not erected. And here is what is now Christchurch uh, Cathedral, um, which uh, was the college chapel and also the uh, cathedral um, of the diocese. So uh, what these deans, Dupper and Fell, wanted to do was complete this side here of the uh, courtyard. But in fact, the only thing they managed to do before the outbreak of the Civil War was uh, complete this incredible staircase. Um, just go back here. This is the Great Hall. This is uh, a tower here in which they built this magnificent uh, staircase leading up to the Great Hall, one of the uh, largest, if not the largest, fan vault ever to be built in England. And so, when Charles I arrived in Oxford to make it his royal capital in October 1642, the arrival of the court, in one sense, 
wasn't particularly unusual. On progress, the court frequently established itself in towns and cities, and because of this special status that Christchurch College had, the king's arrival there was a bit like entering one of the many royal progress houses maintained by the crown. Yet, there was a difference. The royal family very rarely moved together. And when the queen eventually joined the king in Oxford, there would be extremely unusually four royal households in the city in total, including those, of course, of the two princes, Charles and James. In addition to four royal households, there was the army and its officers, and then increasing numbers of officers of state, who, because of the war, quite a lot of them brought their families, uh, their wives, and their children with them. The court always had followers, but in Oxford, it became a magnet for the dispossessed, the penurious, or the simply frightened royalists of all classes. And to make matters even worse, for every man of any status, there was at least one horse and the requirements of stabling became absolutely immense. So there were three authorities who were charged with finding lodgings at Oxford for those with official duties. There was the quartermaster of the army, who was requisitioning lodgings for soldiers. There were the royal harbingers, who were billeting members of the royal household. And then there was the governor um, of the city, who was housing the garrison. And everybody else just had to scramble madly and try and find a place to stay. In order to ease the pressure, the king issued a series of proclamations ordering people who had no official reason to be in the city to get out. Householders were actually paid an allowance of three shillings and sixpence a week for feeding a soldier, and the colleges charged their guests for board and lodging in exactly the same way they would have um, uh, charged uh, the students, who incidentally had all been sent home by the king in order to vacate the colleges for the royal households. Uh, private owners could exchange uh, little pieces of paper called billets, which were uh, accommodation notices issued by the harbingers for, um, for cash. But the pressure on accommodation in the city was acute. This is Anne, Lady Fanshawe. She was summoned by her father to join the court at Oxford in 1643. Her father, Sir John Harrison, was a die-hard royalist, and he'd had his estates sequestered uh, by Parliament. And by the time he reached Oxford, he was, in Anne's words, as poor as Job. She wrote in her autobiography, and I quote, that from as good house as any gentleman of England, we had come to a baker's house in an obscure street. And from rooms well furnished to lie in uh, to uh, a very bad bed in a garret. She describes the plague and sickness by reason of so many people being packed together as I believe there never was before of that quality. But most, she claimed, bore it with martyr-like cheerfulness. So the king 
moved directly into the dean's lodgings at Christchurch. Now, this is David Logan's view of Christchurch a bit later after the um, courtyard had been completed. Uh, in uh, 42, uh, it was still the U-shape, and the king moves into the lodgings just here. And um, you can see the lodgings again in one of the other of David Logan's views. It's this range here that the king is set up in. And a photograph from the garden, ignore this bit here, which is added on later. The king's living in this block uh, of rooms here. On the first floor, he had the usual arrangement of a presence chamber, like a sort of throne chamber, a privy chamber, a private chamber, and a withdrawing chamber. And there were a private back stairs for him and his uh, gentleman of the bedchamber leading up to the withdrawing chamber. The privy council met in the chapter house of the cathedral, and the council of war met in the college's audit house, the, uh, which was the old infirmary um, of the priory. The royal lodgings were furnished with royal tapestries, textiles, plate, and other furniture from the royal wardrobe. And the king clearly was carrying around the countryside with him up until 1642, a huge baggage train, because when his train was eventually uh, captured at the Battle of Naseby, it contained 200 wagons. And this is 200 wagons of household goods, um, uh, coin, uh, and of course, uh, famously after the Battle of Naseby, including all the king's uh, personal correspondence. Now, although Archbishop Lord had characterized Christchurch as having many fair lodgings for great men, there wasn't actually enough space to accommodate either all the offices or the officers of state in the college, let alone the wider royal household. And so luckily, uh, uh, um, contiguous with uh, Christchurch were two other colleges. So here we have here we have Christchurch with the U-shape. This is, this is what it was like in 1642. But you have Corpus Christi College here, and you have Merton College here. You also have Oriel College here. So these three colleges are actually contiguous. You don't need to go over a road to get to them. And you also have uh, uh, Oriel, which you just have to go over a little lane to get uh, close to. And so all three of these colleges, um, Christchurch, Corpus, and Merton were all crunched together into a sort of single big royal uh, palace. So after Henrietta Maria joined the king in Oxford in 1643, she was giving lodgings here at Merton. And here is uh, Merton uh, College. Now, the king and queen knew this college. They had been here in 1629, and they had been feasted by the warden, Sir Nathaniel Brent. But Brent had elected to side with Parliament. And so he had been elect, uh, ejected from his lodgings, which uh, were cited here um, in and above this gateway. And uh, Henrietta Maria uh, moved into them. So she moved into uh, these lodgings uh, here. And her, um, her household moved into this quadrangle. And this quadrangle was a brand new quadrangle. It was only completed in 1610, the most modern one in Oxford, in fact. Um, and on this great uh, tower here, there were the arms of James I. So they must have felt very comfortable and very uh, at home. 
in order to link Merton and Christchurch, uh, um, holes were bashed in the walls between the colleges and gates were put in and a path was laid across the colleges through the gardens so the king and the queen could get uh, uh, between them. So at Corpus Christi here um, lodged John Ashburnham, treasurer and paymaster to the army. And we know that the king and uh, the princes uh, frequently uh, visited him uh, at Corpus Christi College because in the bursar's accounts, we can see that tips were given to the royal trumpeters and the royal footmen. Uh, the provost of Oriel, which I um, indicated where that was a moment ago, was John Tolson. Uh, he was uh, another fervent royalist who actually became vice-chancellor of the university in 1642 and played a major role in the fortification of the city. Oriel was uh, home to the Lord Treasurer, Francis Cottingham, and also to the Dean of the Chapel Royal, and to 35 other royal servants and army officers. Cottington chaired meetings of the executive uh, uh, committee of the Privy Council um, in the college. But perhaps the most important role of Oriel College was uh, as the editorial office for Mercurius Alicus, or the Court Mercury, which was the royalist newspaper published in Oxford from 1643 to 1645, which was the mouthpiece of the royalist cause. So the sort of propaganda hub was established at, um, uh, at Oriel College, right in the heart of this sort of royal enclave. Now, although what I have just described to you at Christchurch, Corpus and Merton might seem like a rather elegant and charming, actually rather an agreeable royal enclave, we have to remember that it was also a war zone. Oxford was a walled city, and the medieval defences were supplemented by a series of modern bastions and gun emplacements. Uh, what you see here is a plan of Oxford drawn up um, in the early 40s, 42, 43, by Bernard de Gom, who you see there, who later on became Charles II's chief military engineer. Uh, you can see the city here, the walled city and the city walls, but what you can see most importantly are these defensive outworks, these ravelins and bastions all the way around uh, the city of Oxford, which were the defences erected by uh, the royalists, effectively using slave labour. The uh, students who remained, foolishly, were required to build these bastions and members of the town also. But what you'll notice on here is Bernard de Gom uh, only identifies two buildings by name, Oxford Castle here and Christchurch. And there is Christchurch, and here is the location of Corpus Christi, and here is the location of Merton. And you can see that uh, in front of these colleges uh, were these particularly large bastions, big gun bastions. And here are Christchurch meadows, and for those of you who know Oxford, know these beautiful meadows here, which uh, were deliberately flooded 
by damming the uh, rivers here. So uh, as you uh, were sitting in these colleges uh, in 42, 43, and right up to 46, actually, you were looking over these fortified walls with huge cannons looking out over the flooded water meadows um, to protect the city from the parliamentarians. Um, and when you look more closely at what's happening within the city, and here's a little... Um, plan that I've just done just to show where everything was, you'll see that actually the whole city was geared towards, uh, uh, towards war. Um, the, um, there was a magazine at, at New College. The artillery was parked at uh, Magdalen College Grove. There was a cannon foundry in the middle of Christchurch. In the school's building, uh, there was a, a, a factory repairing small arms. Uh, drawbridges were um, being mended and manufactured in the school's buildings, and um, also armor and uniforms were, were stored there. Uh, powder, gunpowder, was prudently not made in the city, but was uh, being milled on the outskirts uh, of the city. The uh, town was full of soldiers, um, often short on pay and short on temper, the city was overfull. It was prone to disease, squalor, fire, and disorder. So let's not imagine that they were having a cosy time. Although, as I will go on to explain, Charles I did his best. Now, at the gates of uh, Christchurch, here's Christchurch, was St. Aldate's, this street uh, here, named after the church here, uh, St. Aldate's. Um, and this long uh, uh, street here became the street where the bulk of the royal household was accommodated. In private street, uh, houses on both sides of the street lodged the king's surgeon, his tailor, his barber, his apothecary, and the royal semstress. And all these people held posts that brought them into close contact with the king. And this is a, a brilliant bit of work that somebody did, not me, um, identifying from a, a, a survey that was taken uh, where all the royal servants lived. There's Christchurch, there's the gates to Christchurch. These are all the royal servants, and these are all the places they lived along the street. Amazing piece of work someone's done. Eighty of the king's red-coated lifeguard of foot were also billeted in St. Aldgate's, including their colonel, um, who was also the king's uh, Lord Chamberlain. And on the west side of St. Aldate's, here was Pembroke College, um, whose master was another royalist. Uh, um, and here resided the Secretary of State, Sir Edward Nicholas, and 79 other senior royalists um, and household um, officials. These people basically made their home in Oxford, many uh, remaining in residence when the army left to campaign in the summer. Some married, many had children, and a few died. If you look at the burial records of Christchurch Cathedral um, up here, um, they include entries for an officer of the counting house, the clerk controller, two yeomen of the wardrobe, two garter heralds, and the keeper of the great seal. Well, soon after establishing himself at Christchurch, Charles issued a series of orders for the regulation of access to his lodgings. And these uh, essentially uh, were replicating the uh, court um, etiquettes that were uh, normally held at Whitehall, at Hampton Court, or elsewhere. 
He um, promoted uh, William Seymour here, uh, Marquess of Hartford, um, to be his groom of the stool. This is the most important person in the court, the person who looked after the king's personal needs. And uh, as well as being the groom of the stool, he was made Lord Commissioner of Oxford and Vice-Chancellor of the University. So the king is bringing together all the important posts in a single person as his uh, closest servant um, at uh, Christchurch um, uh, College. Well, when the Queen made her ceremonial entry into Oxford in 1643, um, it, she came in in her coach uh, in a great sort of parade uh, of people. She moved into Merton, as I've said, and she, of course, was accompanied by her Catholic priests, her confessor, and her Catholic attendants. And there was great anxiety amongst uh, the, the, the fellows of the college about holding Anglican services in the Merton Chapel while she was in residence, but the Queen insisted that the Anglican services continue, um, and she must have heard Mass with her household elsewhere in the college. Now, what we have to remember about the court at Oxford was that the summer was the campaigning season. That's when you fought. But the court completely retreated to Oxford during the winters. So the winters of 1642 to 3, 43 to 4, and 44 to 5, court life was almost normal. The Royal um, Army officer, Sir Henry Slingsby, described a day in the king's routine in 1644, and I quote, he kept his hours most exactly, both for his exercises and for his dispatches, as also his hours for admitting all sorts to come and speak with him. You might know where he would be from any hour from his rising, which was very early, to his walk he took in the garden, and so to chapel and dinner. So after dinner, if he went not abroad, he had his hours for writing or discoursing or chess playing or tennis. So, as before the Civil War, the king spent much of his leisure time in the queen's lodgings, where he could be free from the restrictive etiquette of his own apartments. And it didn't take much detective work to work out that because uh, their youngest child was conceived in Oxford, he probably spent the night there too. So the annual round of court ceremonial continued in wintertime, more or less, uninterrupted. The king attended services in the cathedral, taking communion in public. Maundy Thursday, he distributes the Maundy money. He holds a chapter of the Order of the Garter. Um, the young John Aubrey recalled often watching the king dining in public in the Great Hall at Christchurch. There was no shortage of food for the royal table. And uh, some of the accounts survive showing that the uh, king's table set up for public dining was uh, groaning with um, good food and provisions. And here, in fact, is the great hall at uh, Christchurch where uh, the king dined and indeed where he feasted um, uh, 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 visiting ambassadors. To Oxford also came the parliamentary representatives to try and negotiate a settlement with the king. 
and there are various descriptions of them being received in the royal rooms at Christchurch, just as if they had been uh, at a, uh, an audience with the king at Whitehall. So this ordered maintenance of court and state etiquette and the use of state theatre at Christchurch was just as important to Charles I as was the military effort. For Charles to be visibly king and to be afforded due deference was crucial not only to his own dignity, but to the dignity of his office, which was the thing he was fighting to preserve. The Oxford court was no ramshackle compromise. It was conducted with deliberate dignity and magnificence. While the ceremonial side of the king's life was upheld, there was no neglect of pleasure. Charles hunted with his hounds in his own park at Woodstock, just outside Oxford. And in poor weather, he played tennis with the Prince of Wales, the Duke of York, and Prince Rupert. There was, in fact, a tennis court at the back. So this is, um, this is Christchurch. This building here, oh, sorry, this building here is a tennis court. Um, and uh, there's a wonderful account in November 1643. Just think what's going on. November 1643, and he orders his master of the robes to send a servant from London to Oxford to bring a bolt of taffeta, two pairs of garters, and roses with silk buttons to make him a tennis suit. <laughs> Although most court musicians stayed in London, some came to Oxford, and they accompanied services at Christchurch. But uh, as well as the musicians, uh, came actors to perform plays and masks at court, although perhaps without some of the complex scenery that had become commonplace at uh, Whitehall. In February 1546, at the sort of nadir of the king's position in Oxford, um, a play was acted before him, and I quote, to keep up his spirit instead of good success from his soldiery. Sir Anthony Van Dyke had died just as the Civil War had begun, and the English painter, sometime protégé of Van Dyke, came to Oxford, uh, rented a house, um, and set up a painting studio at St John's College. And in here were painted Prince Rupert, Prince Maurice, Prince James, Prince Charles, and as well as the king himself. And these amazing pictures by Dobson, and I urge you to go and see them in the portrait gallery if you've never seen these before, totally capture what life must have been like in uh, Oxford in the um, early 1640s. And I love this group portrait of 1645-6, to six, showing a meeting between three royalist uh, uh, commanders um, in, um, uh, in the uh, royal capital uh, at Oxford. In 1643, the king ordered all royal servants should come and join him at Oxford, and this was a, a prelude to an attempt to relocate all the central organs of state from Westminster to uh, uh, Oxford. And so the, the law courts um, were um, brought to Oxford, the, um, uh, the chancery, the exchequer, and crucially, uh, so was the mint. And the Oxford mint, which was set up um, in, in New Hall Inn, 
actually produced huge amounts of coin, including one of the most beautiful English coins ever struck. And you can see uh, on the uh, obverse of this coin here, um, slogans explaining what Charles I was fighting for. Uh, he was fighting for um, the Protestant religion, the laws of England, and the freedom of Parliament, Liber Pal, which is extraordinarily uh, um, sort of ambiguous statements to us today. But what I really want you to look at is this side of the coin. And here you see the king on his horse bestriding Oxford. And this remarkable coin must have been struck on the king's orders. Because what he is, uh, is doing here is he's showing his pride in Oxford, his pride in its buildings, the beauty um, and the history of this uh, city. Um, and uh, we know that when he actually had an opportunity in 1645 to move the court to Bristol, he resolved to stay in Oxford as it was the only uh, place that could have accommodated the court in comfort and the only place that he thought was suitable to his and the court's magnificence. Well, um, Henrietta Maria, as I've already mentioned, uh, became pregnant. Uh, she had to leave Oxford. It was very unhealthy, so she disappears. She um, goes down to the West Country, then she gets a ship to the Channel Islands and she ends up in France. The king never sees her again. And as uh, Oxford is completely encircled by the parliamentary army on the 27th of April, 1646, he rides out of Oxford disguised as a servant, accompanied by three attendants um, and abandoning his capital and abandoning his son, the Duke of York. On June the 25th, the keys of the surrendered city were handed to the Parliamentary General, General Fairfax, who, with the other senior parliamentary officers, entered the city and made for Christchurch. There, sitting in the Royal Presence Chamber, on the chair of estate in uh, Christchurch College, was Prince, Je Prince James, the future James II, King of England. One by one, the parliamentary generals kissed the 12-year-old's hand. Only one of their number knelt at the feet of the boy, the 12-year-old boy, as he did so. That man was Oliver Cromwell. Even in the humiliation of defeat, the magic of monarchy was alive. Well, I'm not going to go through all the various shenanigans uh, that got uh, Charles uh, I from Oxford to Hampton Court. But that is indeed uh, where he ended up in January 1647 after uh, a deal with the um, Scots allowed him to be moved uh, to, the, to, to, to the south. And so Hampton Court uh, was his resting place for uh, 11 weeks from the 24th of August. And what is usually described as Charles's imprisonment at Hampton Court was it was barely house arrest. Not only did he have free movement about the palace and parks, but he retained all his attendants, and he essentially held court in miniature, maintained by Parliament's official sanction. The house was uh, refurnished for his arrival. Plate 
was issued from the jewel house at the Tower of London for his table. It also seems that Charles uh, requested paintings of his family to be sent from Whitehall to hang on the walls of Hampton Court. And they include, uh, we're pretty sure, um, portraits of Henrietta Maria painted by uh, Van Dyck. He then successfully petitioned Parliament for his children to come and visit him. And between June and November 1647, they came several times a week, talking, hunting, playing tennis with their father. In October that year, Charles requested that they should occasionally be allowed to stay overnight, a, quest, a request that was granted. Um, Elizabeth came to stay in a bedroom off the Privy Gallery, and she asked that the King's guards should be moved a little further off, as she claimed that their noise kept her awake at night. Charles's stay at Hampton Court was remarkably happy. Uh, Royalist supporters came from London to see him, pay their respects. Also came senior parliamentary officers, including o Oliver Cromwell and Henry Ireton, with whom the King discussed the so-called heads of proposals, the draft agreement that was being touted as the best constitutional offer on set uh, uh, settlement on offer. On the 9th or 10th of October, though, uh, Cromwell wrote to Colonel Edward Wally, Charles's supervisor at Hampton Court, warning him that the army might try and assassinate the king. Wally showed the letter to Charles. The following night, under cover of darkness, Charles escaped. What he had done, almost certainly, was... Um, slip out the, the, the royal privy lodgings are over here and this bit sticking out here is the, the private stair, the privy stair that led down from the privy lodgings into the gardens and what uh, Charles did was slip out of this staircase through the gardens to uh, uh, the waterside here where there was a, a boat waiting for him uh, that took him over the water, uh, there, was, uh, there were horses waiting for him on the other side and he galloped off into the night. Um, there was no agreed plan of where he was going to go to, at least not until they had got past Farnham, when the king finally decided that he was going to make for the Isle of Wight. Now, um, the Isle of Wight uh, was chosen because uh, there was no army unit there. Because, of course, we've got to remember the reason he flees from Hampton Court is because he's frightened of being assassinated. There's no army unit there. But more to the point, while he was receiving these various senior uh, um, parliamentary officers in state at Hampton Court, one of them, Colonel Robert Hammond, uh, made a good impression of him. And Hammond, a uh, 26-year-old uh, army officer, um, was made the governor of the Isle of Wight. And the intention was to go to uh, Hammond and ask him whether he was prepared to shelter the king at Carisbrook Castle. Well, I think the king was pretty lukewarm about this plan. He was placing himself in the hands of a parliamentary uh, army officer who clearly had conflicted loyalties. But Charles had very little choice. And so uh, he made the short sea crossing across the Solent 
to the Isle of Wight and on to Carisbrook Castle. So those of you who know um, the Isle of Wight, here's Newport up here, and here is Carisbrook. You can see the castle right in the middle. I mean, it's an incredibly strategic position. And because it was often regarded as sort of the gateway to England, it was a, a castle that had long been fortified and last fortified in the 1590s when there was the fear, the threat of uh, Spanish invasion, the, the Spanish Armada. And at that point, uh, the um, castle was uh, re-fortified by its captain, Sir George Carey. And you can see uh, here, here's the medieval castle. And these outworks, they look a bit like the ones around Oxford, don't they? Very similar. These, these uh, um, artillery outworks were put right the way around the castle um, in order to uh, protect it from Spanish invasion. Sir George Carey, who was the captain of the castle and responsible for this refortification, was the son of Lord Hunston, who was the Queen's cousin. Uh, and he, entitled, he inherited Lord Hunston's titles in 1596. He'd actually been uh, appointed um, captain of the castle in 1583, and he clearly felt that the sort of medieval lodgings which the constable inherited here were not really up to scratch. And so he built a brand new large residence here, BB, these rooms here, for um, himself in which he lived in some style. 13 quite handsome rooms with what were described as a fair pair of large stairs. And in fact, Charles I had been feasted in these uh, handsome lodgings uh, when he was Prince of Wales in 1618. But of course, the king's visit in November 1647 was rather different from his feasting as Prince of Wales in 1618. He moved into uh, these lodgings um, where he received a number of island dignitaries and he explained, and I uh, quote here, that my resolution in coming here being but to be secured till there may be some happy accommodation made. In other words, he basically wanted to be safe until some deal was done by Parliament. How long this was going to take, nobody knew. And so, Charles successfully requested that uh, his household servants that he had hurriedly left behind at Hampton Court should be sent to Carisbrook to join him. And a large posse of uh, servants arrived uh, at the castle at the end of November with several uh, dozen carts of furnishings. Uh, including tapestries and furniture and plate and bedding and everything that completely transformed these uh, uh, lodgings here into uh, a uh, handsomely furnished royal palace. A month later, the royal coach with a liveried coachman and footman were also shipped across the sea and delivered to the castle. And at first, the king, living at Carisbrook, was remarkably free to travel round the island in his coach, sightseeing and doing a spot of hunting. But by the end of the year, security was tightened up. The king went out uh, much less. And after a rather 
feeble attempt by some local people to rescue him, so-called rescue him, the excursions round the island ceased and he was effectively imprisoned. What I think is so striking about the king's initial establishment is that he was accommodated in fine rooms, richly furnished, and attended by a household of some 70 attendants. And even after Parliament purged his household of suspect servants, there were still 30 uh, servants in the castle. They managed to continue a royal life with a considerable degree of formality. He ceremoniously dined in public. He went to daily prayers. He received visitors. He read books that had been sent down from London from the Royal Library. He listened to music. He touched people for the king's evil. And after the construction of a bowling green, which was specially made for him in the East Bailey, that's this, there's a bowling green here, um, he played bowls regularly. And towards the end of the summer, a little pavilion was built, obviously quite a remarkable building because we've got the accounts for it, um, for the king's shelter. It was rather a rainy summer. Two incidents in particular, I think, tell us something about the king's mental state. One of the guests uh, brought up from London to see him at Carisbrook was John Webb. Now, John Webb was Inigo Jones's um, assistant, and uh, he had been working with Inigo Jones on an extraordinary project to rebuild Whitehall Palace. This uh, project had been going on and off during the, um, uh, during the 1530s. And astonishingly, with Charles uh, uh, I in captivity, at Carisbrook, he called for John Webb and asked him to bring his plans for Whitehall to uh, the castle because he'd got leisure time so he could discuss what they were going to build next. And this is what they were going to build next. This modest palace here um, can be characterized by me uh, telling you that this building here is the banqueting house on Whitehall. Okay? So uh, this vast palace was going to cover you know, most of St. James's Park and the whole of this area across to the river. These plans uh, were discussed uh, with the king by John Webb, and on the bottom uh, of one of them, the king signed it, taken, which essentially means this is the plan I have agreed and that you will build. So that's the first thing that sort of characterizes mentality. The second thing is a, a, an order that was given to the royal librarian, Patrick Young. Now, the royal uh, library was established at St. James's Palace, and it was a fantastic library, and it not only uh, contained books and manuscripts and drawings, it contained uh, the king's um, coin and medal cabinet. And uh, Patrick Young uh, received a letter from the king, uh, signed at uh, Carisbrook, um, asking him to consult the antiquary, Sir Simmons Dews, uh, and ask him to help sort out his coin collection, placing the specimens in precise date order and removing any duplicates. Now, of course, we, ladies and gentlemen, have the benefit of hindsight. 
and we uh, kind of realize, because we know what happened within five months of these orders being uh, uh, given, that they were acts of fantasy on one hand and denial on the other. But they sort of encapsulate the whole period I have been speaking about this evening. A king focused on his regality, focused on the deference that was due to him, focused on his rights, focused on his prerogatives, and, un, uh, and unable to see that without compromise on his part, resolution was impossible to find. Well, after um, several hopeless uh, attempts um, at escape from the uh, castle, frustrated uh, by a mixture of treachery, bad luck, and incompetence. My favorite one of his uh, escape stories is the one where he um, tried to get out of his bedroom window that had bars on it. Um, he got his head and shoulders out, and then he couldn't get the rest of him through. And he was stuck uh, half out and half in and um, had to be uh, pulled back into his lodgings by his uh, boots uh, before he was uh, spotted. I mean, it was completely hopeless, really. And uh, as well as these incompetent uh, attempts to escape, uh, there were negotiations. And these um, here is a contemporary woodcut showing um, the king at the negotiations for the um, so-called Treaty of Newport, um, uh, which was part of the process to try and find an accommodation between the king and parliament. But on November the 30th, 1648, after a year's residence, he was there for a year at uh, Carisbrook, Charles was removed to Hurst Castle on the mainland, one step towards London, and although nobody at the time appreciated it, one step towards the executioner's block. Well, ladies and gentlemen, tonight we have seen how in a completely different way to his father, Charles I established his court in complex and unexpected environments. These were not out of choice like his father's. These were out of circumstance. But the king was determined that circumstances would not compromise the deference and order about his person. Indeed, these courts at Oxford and, uh, uh, and Carisbrook were as ceremonious as the fixed courts were before the Civil War. In my next lecture, we're going to be looking at the court of Charles II. Not, though, the familiar court after 1660, but his court in exile, and consider how British etiquette interacted with architecture in far from ideal circumstances in France and in Holland. Thank you very much. Thank you.